0: All right, so uh, we begin today um, by celebrating together for the first time this year, uh, communion. This, of course, is not the typical way that things go. In the midst of a global pandemic, we are forced to do this from a distance, and we're forced to um, do this apart. We're forced to use what... Jennifer Navarro has uh, so uh, uh, graciously referred to as Jesus Lunchables, <laughs> these uh, prepackaged um, communion items uh, for uh, the you know fear of coronavirus and, and the concerns that, that come with it. unfortunately, we can 't all be here as a body together uh, doing this. But thank God that we have technology that provides us the opportunity to still be unified across uh, the distance. And truthfully, that's how it is every single Sunday uh, that this happens, every single year for all of our lives. The global church all together, though we are separate, are unified. Everybody that follows Jesus Christ is unified in the same thing, and that is his death and resurrection. His love for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us, joins us together no matter where we are. Um, and, And that includes a time like this where it's a virus that separates us. Um, and so many of you hopefully saw on, uh, on Facebook earlier this week um, the post that I put up regarding doing this together tonight. And so for those of you that are participating at home, uh, hopefully you have prepared uh, for this. And what this does also is it provides us an opportunity to put into practice an essential understanding of what we have been called to as individual families. Because the church family is made up of the nuclear families uh, that build it. And in those nuclear families, God has called husbands and fathers to pastor their families, to lead their, spa- th- their families spiritually. And so this is a great opportunity for those of you who are at home, dads, husbands, to administer this communion to your wife and, and to your children if, if children are participating and that's a, a decision that, that is up to you. Um, and so, hopefully, uh, you have those things prepared with you. We have our uh, pre-packaged communion here. And uh, this is the first time that we've ever used these, guys. And so, hopefully, it's self-explanatory. The, the top uh, first pull-away will give us the wafer. And then the second, the bottom pull-away will give us uh, the, the juice. And the reason why we do this, again, is to commemorate, to celebrate. I was having a conversation, Allison and I were having a conversation earlier today with, uh, with Marisol, and, and we were explaining to her exactly what communion is, the purpose for communion. And we talked about the fact that it's like a wedding ring. This ring on my finger does not make me married or unmarried. As you can see, I've taken it off. That doesn't mean that Allison and I are no longer married, though she likes to joke about that to make sure that I never take it off because she's afraid I'll lose it. <laughs> But this is a symbol. It's a sign outwardly of an inward reality. The, The inward reality is that she and I have covenanted together for our entire lives. And so I wear this as an outward symbol to commemorate that covenant. To show others that covenant. To celebrate that covenant visually every single day. Communion is just like that. Communion is a way for us to outwardly celebrate an inward reality. That we have been redeemed by the body and the blood of Jesus. That we as a body do this in remembrance of all that he has done for us. That we celebrate this in anticipation for when he comes to get us. In anticipation for the great wedding feast of the lamb that we will one day celebrate. This paltry little snack That does not fill us, that does not satisfy us, is a reminder that we are not yet home. One day we will be at the feast that will satisfy, but until then, we have a wafer and a shot glass of grape juice to say, Jesus, we're so thankful for what you've done for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is speaking, and he says this, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And so now we can pop this open and, uh, and take the bread. It says, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we take this in remembrance of Jesus Christ. In the same way, verse 25, in the same way, he also took the cup. He took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we take this cup in remembrance of the blood shed for us by Jesus Christ. And now at home, you can join hands as we pray. Father, thank you so much for the gift, the gift of Jesus. Thank you that you for your own glory and a desire for us to share in your glory and your love gave yourself for us God we eat this bread and we drink this cup we proclaim your death until you come back we do this in remembrance of you for all that you've given and God I pray that, that this reminder would help us to live with eternity in mind Thank you again for the opportunity to do this together, even as we are apart, and I pray, Father, that as we continue to do this in the life of our church, that it will be a constant reminder of all that you have done, and all that you have given, and all that you are, and our worship for you, for all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, we are almost done with the book of Ecclesiastes, just a few more weeks left. And so today we get to uh, chapter 9. In 1872, J.B. Johnson attempted to become the first person to swim successfully across the English Channel. The English Channel is a part of the Atlantic Ocean that uh, separates England and France. And this channel is approximately 350 miles long, 150 miles wide at its widest point, and 21 miles wide at its most narrow point. And that narrow point, the Strait of Dover, is the location of now what is one of the most famous spots in the world for long-distance swimming. And it all began with J.B. Johnson. Prior to J.B. Johnson, on record, no one ever attempted to swim across the channel that we know of. Not only is this a distance of 21 miles, it's also incredibly cold in this mm-hmm. water, regardless of what time of year we're talking about. Even, even during warm months, the water in the English Channel is Rarely over 60 degrees Fahrenheit. For reference, in case that number doesn't mean anything to you, 60 degrees. Um, As most of you remember, I am a uh, glorified pool boy at Notre Dame. And so one of my jobs at Notre Dame is to take care of the hot tubs and the cold tubs that our athletes use for therapy. These cold tubs, we also call them ice baths. And we maintain these cold tubs at a temperature of about... 50 degrees between 49 and 51 degrees is usually where we keep these things so 60 degrees is very very cold Okay, most people cannot stand to be in these cold tubs longer than a few minutes Even just putting your hand in this water for a couple of minutes You pull your hand out and it's numb. It's painful I don't understand how these athletes can be in there for very long and the, the trainers have strict rules about the athletes being in the water never submerged above your heart um, for fear of heart failure so the english channel very very cold and Not only that, but the English Channel also boasts incredibly strong currents. So it's not as if you're just swimming in a straight line for 21 miles. That would be all too easy, right? Anyone could do that. But then you throw in the currents, and and the current will actively fight against you as you are swimming, meaning that at times you have to swim in an S pattern to uh, go with or um, against currents depending on how strong the current is on whatever day that you're attempting to swim the English Channel, that means that your 21 mile swim could turn into as much as 45 miles. Then throw in the fact that the English Channel is the busiest shipping area in the world with over 500 ships a day in its waters and you are now also playing Frogger as you swim across. And so J.B. Johnson holds the distinction of being the first person known to attempt to swim across. Little is known about how that attempt went. All that's known for sure is that for some reason, just over an hour into his swim, he was forced to stop. The second attempt was made a short time later by a guy named Captain Paul Boynton. In 1875, Captain Boyton was an American sailor um, who spent his post military days doing stunts, water stunts. And he also had a very successful life in establishing a lot of lifeguarding practices. And so at one point during his career, he encountered an inventor named Clark Merriman. And Clark Merriman had invented a rubber suit that could float. He called this a life-preserving suit, and he needed someone to test the life-preserving suit. And seeing this opportunity as a way to gain publicity, Boynton said, hey, I've got a great idea. How about I use this to try to swim across the English Channel? So, in the Strait of Dover, he set out beginning to swim, followed by reporters in a steamboat. But 15 hours into the journey... Worsening weather caused the captain of the boat to call off the stunt. And so he was not successful. This did not stop him, though. Six weeks later, he attempted a second time. And that second time, he made it. And it took him 23 and a half hours to swim from one side to the other. But amazing as that was, he did so wearing a life preserving suit. And he was using paddles. So even though he's the first person to swim across, there's a huge asterisk. It doesn't really count. Enter a second captain, Captain Matthew Webb. Webb was known for his life-saving swims while in the military. And so having heard of Boyton's feat, he wanted to attempt it himself. And so he decided to do so without any assistance of a life-preserving suit. So on August 24th, 1875, he completed his attempt in 21 hours and 45 minutes, etching his name in history as the first person to swim unaided across the English Channel. He, after that, became an international celebrity, and he continued to travel around and do these kinds of stunt swims. Eight years later... Uh, He was attempting to swim the Whirlpool Rapids at Niagara Falls and drowned there. Since Captain Webb's amazing achievement, tens of thousands of people have attempted to replicate his feat. And many have. An Australian guy named Trent Grimsey set the record for the fastest time across the channel in 2012 at only 6 hours and 45 minutes. The slowest person to successfully do it did so in 28 hours. In all, 1,831 people have been successful. The vast majority who try, fail. At least 15 documented cases have occurred of people dying while trying. Amazing as it sounds to swim that far, as with all records, at some point someone will do something even more amazing. In 1961, an Argentinian named Antonio Abortondo became the first person to swim the channel and back nonstop, which took him 43 hours. Ready to have your mind blown? In 2019, Sarah Thomas swam the channel four times there and back without stopping in the course of 54 hours. Sarah Thomas, by the way, is a world record holder for unaided open water swimming. Her most famous swim was 104 miles over 67 hours in Lake Champlain. That is nuts to me. Just saying that out loud sounds completely impossible, right? Who can swim for 67 hours? Apparently only Sarah Thomas can. But as I was reading about these stories, there was another nugget that, that blew my mind even more, that sounded even more impossible. Some of these ultra-marathon swimmers accomplish at least part of their journey while unconscious, okay, unconscious. One such swimmer was described in the Washington Post, a guy named Jason Zerganos. And this article in the Washington Post talked about his famous swims and, and stated that unconsciousness occurs when the core body temperature reaches somewhere between 91 to 86 degrees, Okay. Your normal body temperature, of course, is 98.6 degrees. And so 10 degrees less, your, your body goes unconscious. But if a person is highly acclimated to the cold, they've done this uh, a, a number of times, add to that incredible willpower and the mechanics of swimming that are burned into your muscle memory, these swimmers... Can swim for a short period of time beyond the point of their brains being fully conscious. They are so cold that they go unconscious but continue to swim. Zerganos was observed swimming for multiple hours in a semi conscious state before he was eventually pulled out of the boat, after which he took three hours to come to full consciousness. Uh, Fun fact, he also died later in a swim, so there's that. But that does not take away from the incredible nature of that feat. But here's the thing we need to understand about these swims. Even though they are described as being unaided, that's really kind of a misnomer. It is true that they cannot use any kind of artificial aid, like a a life-preserving suit. They also cannot ever during their swim touch another person or a boat for support. They can't swim behind a boat. They can't swim behind a person because the, the stream that's created by a boat might aid them. They can't wear anything to keep them warm in terms of like a wetsuit. They, they can't swim in a wetsuit. It has to be sleeveless and um, open-legged. They can coat themselves in grease, and many of them do, Uh, To stay warm. But that doesn't mean that they are completely unaided. You see, each attempt to swim across the English Channel is overseen by the official Channel Swimming Association, it is regulated by this board. There is a strict code of rules, a strict code of oversight, and team participation. Every single one of these swimmers is followed closely by a pilot boat. And on that boat, there is a team of trained professionals. The team is shouting directions, instructions, encouragement. And the team also feeds the swimmers during their swim by handing them uh, food or uh, liquid attached to a pole. Okay, they can't hand it to them directly because there can be no human-to-human contact. So they uh, have a grabber pole and they, they put food and water into the, into the water so that the swimmer can eat and drink as they swim. If at any point a swimmer needs to be pulled out of the water, a rescue diver is there to jump in immediately. Now that doesn't take away by any means how incredible these swimmers are. But we can't exactly use the term literally unaided. For example, during the research for this, I I saw a headline about a guy swimming across the Pacific Ocean unaided. And so I, I quickly click on this story because I'm like, that's amazing. That's impossible. How could someone swim across the Pacific Ocean? And... Again, he is an absolutely amazing swimmer. He's doing things that very, very few people could ever do, but he accomplishes his feat by swimming approximately eight hours each day, climbing onto the boat, eating, sleeping, and then going back into the water in the morning. The same was true of a guy named Louis Pugh who became the first person to swim the length of the English Channel, all 330 miles worth, and it took seven weeks But none of these swimmers were completely unaided. They had a team and they had a boat. If you took the greatest swimmer of all time, Sarah Thomas, and you set her off in the Pacific Ocean totally, truly unaided by herself, do you know what would happen? She would drown or get eaten by a shark, one of the two. But she would not be able to swim the entire length of the Pacific Ocean. She would, much, uh, she would very likely make it much further than any other person in the world could make it. If we apply her record, she would make it over 100 miles out into the, into the Pacific Ocean. If I tried to do that, I might make it 100 yards Okay there would be people on the shore watching and without any time passing whatsoever you know I'm I it's not like I'm going off into the distance like they they're still within earshot and I would go under and they'd be like wow that didn't take this guy very long at all well he's already dead what a chump Sarah Thomas would make it 100 miles into the Pacific Ocean But the Pacific Ocean is over 1,100 miles wide. I'm sorry, 11,000 is what I meant to say. It's 11,000 miles wide. So even if she made it 100 miles, she is barely even scratching the surface of the length of the vast ocean. The ocean is vast. If every person on earth attempted this, There would be varying distances for their stopping points. But without exception, every single person would drown. And at the end of each life, very few of us would have reached out into the ocean as far as Sarah Thomas. Most would swim further than me, but the end result for all would be the same. If that is a sobering, jarring or even depressing truth to point out, that is exactly how Solomon wants you to feel. As we read chapter 9 tonight, in his continued attempt to break us out of our finite, limited, earthly mindset, today he's going to show us that no matter how you live, as good or as bad, or anywhere in between, no matter what you do, you are going to get the same result as everyone else. Death. But he's also going to show us that death is not the end because we don't have to swim unaided. There is a God with a boat ready to take us all to the other side of the water. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, as he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of men are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share. And all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that He has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in shale to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net. Like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared at an evil time when suddenly it falls upon them. I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it. And a great king came against it and besieged it building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Let's jump right in. Point number one. We don't live wisely to be rewarded with longer life. We live wisely to invest in eternity. We don't live wisely to be rewarded with longer life. We live wisely to invest in eternity. Solomon begins by pointing out what he has observed in all men under the sun. And he gives these contrasts to make it very clear to us that he is observing all kinds of people the wise and the fool, whether they love or they hate, whether they sacrifice or do not sacrifice, whether they swear oaths or not swear oaths, whether they're evil or good whether they are sincere or they are liars, no matter who they are, no matter what they do, no matter what they accomplish, the same thing happens to all. Every single one dies. Every single one. No matter how far you can swim, no matter how good of a swimmer you are, even if you are Sarah Thomas, he says, every single person has jumped out in the Pacific Ocean to try to swim across. And a lot of people have swum, uh, swum further than others. Is it swam? It's it swam, isn't it? Swam. Some swam further than others, but every single one of them drowns. At some point, Your life comes to an end, and it's sudden, without knowing when it will be. You will die. In our generation, one of the things that is common is this idea of invincibility. We live as though we have all the time in the world. We risk and we do irresponsible things. We try to enjoy each day as if we have all the time in the world in front of us. But Solomon says, you do not. Not a single day is promised to you. And even if, even if you do live a long time, ain't nobody living on this earth forever. Uh, if we were to compare metaphors here, Sarah Thomas might be like Methuselah, okay? As we look in the annals of time, one guy stood out further than anyone else in terms of length of life, and that was Methuselah, who lived to the age of 969. I imagine at that point he looked like Yoda, Okay? After 969 years, he was hunched over and crippled and his ears had grown out uh, as far as they possibly could. But you know what happened? He died. He died. Every single one of us is going to die. Now, if we're not careful... What can come from that is this idea of, well, then it it doesn't matter. If we're not careful, when we read that, we could just throw up our hands and say, well, if it doesn't matter whether I live well or unwell, if it doesn't matter whether I'm wise or I'm foolish, what's the point? And that is part of Solomon's uh, 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 attempt here. He does want us to ask that question, what's the point? but that's not his final destination. And that's why at the very beginning of this series, one of the things that I talked about was a cursory glance at this book makes it seem very, very fatalistic. If we just glance over the book, it does seem like Solomon is throwing up his hands and saying, meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. Bubbles, bubbles, all is bubbles. But that's not the end of the story for Solomon. He wants us to get there. But he doesn't want us to stay there. He wants to bring us to that point of what's the point in order to teach us what is beyond. Because what ultimately he's trying to get us to is a realization that life without Jesus is pointless. Life under the sun, if we do not have an eternal perspective in mind, is going to leave us in a place where we say, what's the point? That is the only logical place that we can go. It's the only logical place. If we are honest, if we are intellectually honest, the only place that we can go, if this is all that there is, is meaninglessness. That's it. We have to arrive at total nihilism. And if you look at, philosophers that have reached this conclusion, they are among the most depressed people in all of history. But at least they're honest. They recognize life is void of meaning. And we try so hard to to put as much meaning as we can on it. Don't we? we? We try to attach meaning to various things, which is what Solomon has been talking to up to this point. We try to attach meaning to our relationships. We try to, uh, try to attach meaning to our work, to our accomplishments, to our jobs, to our achievements, to the difference that we make in the world. We try to attach all of this meaning to it. But really, if we're honest, Solomon says, no matter what you do, whether you, you accomplish these great things or not, The same thing is going to happen to you that happens to everybody else. Whether you were sitting on your couch doing nothing or going out and making a difference in the world, you're going to drown. You can't swim all the way across the ocean unaided. You can't do it. So he has us ask the question, what's the point? Because he's trying to get us to a place where we see that what is under the sun isn't. The point. But we're not going to realize that until we break out of this, uh, this mindset of this is all that we have. He makes it very clear in verse 4. That as long as you're breathing, you have a chance to get this right. He says in verse 4, He who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, of course, uh, if we're comparing the value of these animals, a dog is at the bottom of the barrel and a lion is the king of the jungle. And he says, listen, a living dog is better than a dead lion. In other words, he's saying, no matter what your station in life, if you are breathing, you still have a chance to see the truth. It's not too late for you. If you are upright and breathing, you too can come to a place where you understand that there is more to life than what happens just under the sun. You must have an eternal perspective. Now, at the end of this section, it might seem like he's going in the opposite direction. Look at verse five and six once more. He says, for the living know that they will die, But the dead know nothing. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. A cursory glance at those verses might make it seem like Solomon is saying Listen, when you die, that's it. There's no afterlife, there's no beyond. In the grave, you know nothing. The dead know nothing. They have no more reward. The memory of them is forgotten. But Solomon is not talking about the memory of them in the beyond. He's talking about the memory of them here. In the here and now, in the under the sun, if this is all that there is, they have no more reward. If this is all that there is, they have nothing more to gain. If this is all that there is, they have nothing to accomplish. If this is all that there is, they just drown and they die and it's over. And even the memory of them will be forgotten. Like I said earlier in the series, if you are lucky, if you're lucky, you get to be the answer on some kid's history test 100 years from now. Who cares? Who cares? that's it because even if you if you're one of the lucky ones who gets to be a world changer in someone's history book you don't enjoy that as a dead person if this is all that there that's what he's saying if this is all that there is then you have nothing to look forward to because no matter what you accomplish it will pass away so this, this should bring us to a place where we truly think about what is it that I am looking forward to? What is it that I'm placing my hope in? Retirement? Okay. Then what? Old age? <laughs> then what? Death. And then what? What is it that we're placing our hope having children Seeing our children graduate, seeing our children have children, seeing their children have children, all of those are good things. Uh, Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that those things are bad. What I'm saying is, if this is all that there is, then it's nothing. It's bubbles. And so Solomon is saying, you need to recognize what your hope is in looking forward. You don't know if today is going to be your last day. But even if you get 50 more years, so what? Even if you get 100 miles out into the Pacific Ocean, there you drown. So what now? Now I want to very quickly point out the fact that skeptics, um, atheists, agnostics, whomever, skeptics of Christianity often say that reward-based morality is not really morality at all, right? They, they say, if you need the promise of a reward in heaven in order for you to be a good person, then you're not really a good person. If you can't be good for the sake of being good, it isn't truly good. And they say that to say, well, if all you're looking forward to is heaven and that's the reason why you're living wisely or good, then is that really good at all? And I understand that argument. Uh, I understand that, that if what we're doing is trying to accomplish something for ourselves, then is it really selfish? Perhaps. But what Solomon is doing is he's giving us eternal perspective. He's trying to help us see the full picture. He's, he's getting us to see what is most valuable. Because with that perspective, at that point, we can understand why we do the things that we do, how we can enjoy this life, that we're not living and doing good things in order to be rewarded with a better life. We're living in order to invest in what true life really is in eternity. We are making investments into eternity. We are being faithful to the God that created us. And so the reason why we ought to do these things in life is not so that they can necessarily pay off here. Our our payoff is later. And we're doing so out of obedience because God has given us an eternity to enjoy himself. Point number two. Eternal perspective gives us the freedom to enjoy our time under the sun, regardless of what it contains. Eternal perspective gives us the freedom to enjoy our time under the sun, regardless of what it contains. Look once more at verses seven through 10. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love, all the days of your bubble-filled life that he has given you under the sun. Because that's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to where you are going. So Solomon makes this point Now, for the last time. This point is one that he's been making repeatedly over and over and over throughout the book. Several times before he has said this very same thing. Eat and drink and enjoy life. The first time he said it was in chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24 he says there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also i saw is from the hand of god for apart from him who can eat or have enjoyment for the for to the one who pleases him god has given wisdom and knowledge and joy but to the sinner he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases god this also is bubbles of striving after the wind he repeats it again in chapter 3 verse 12 where he says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. Chapter five, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which one toils under the sun in the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Chapter eight, verse 15. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And he says it one more time here in chapter nine. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. God has already approved what you do. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you to toil Under the sun. Over and over and over and over. He's hammering this over and over and over because he's trying to get us to understand that vanity, bubbles, does not mean that life has no meaning. He isn't trying to get us to a place of nihilism. He isn't trying to get us to a place where we just throw up our hands and say, what's the point? I can't swim across the ocean. It's impossible. Why even try? I might as well just attach whatever meaning I can because it's all going to be over soon anyway. Over and over and over, he says, no, 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 no. I want to remind you in the middle of all this seemingly negative talk that what you should do is eat and drink and have joy with your life. That is impossible unless you have the right perspective. It's impossible unless you have eternal perspective. Again, if this is all that there is, If life under the sun is all that we get, there is nothing that we can do. It is pointless. It is meaningless. It is vanity. It is bubbles. But over and over and over, Solomon says, I tell you to have joy and to eat and drink and be merry in your heart, to enjoy life with your spouse, because this is not all that there is because there is more to look forward to because there's better to look forward to and it's only with that right perspective only with that right perspective that we actually can enjoy life this is how he explains it in verse 7 Where he says, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. He says this, for God has already approved what you do. For God has already approved what you do. Now, this is not a blanket statement that he is making to say, literally whatever you do in life, good, bad, or ugly, God approves it. That's not what he's saying. This is not a blanket morality that says, choose your own adventure, This is not Solomon saying, God doesn't really care what you do as long as you do it passionately. That's not what he means. What he means, this is another way of saying, you cannot earn your way to peace and joy and hope. We accept this from God. And when we accept this gift, the pressure is off. And now we are free to enjoy what he has given us. God has approved what we do for him. We cannot isolate this verse from the rest of everything that he's been saying. Everything leading up to this point has been establishing the same train of thought. We are here for the Lord. We are here for eternity. We are here for the beyond. This is not all that there is. All that stuff is empty. All that stuff is vain. All that stuff is bubbles. If you try to live for that, it won't give you anything. But if you live for this, it will. So all of that leads up to this point where he says, once you have that perspective, once you have eternity in your heart, once you are seeing that this is not all that there is, at that point you know, well, it's not about what I do to achieve this. God's already given it to me. God has already given me this tremendous gift of eternity. And and so the pressure is off. I don't have to figure out what's going to make me happy. I don't have to figure out what's going to make me satisfied. I don't have to work endlessly to try to build towards something that I'm never really going to achieve. Because at some point I'm going to drown and it's all going to go away. He says, I already have it. I'm already blessed. That's why he says, let your garments always be white and let not oil be lacking on your head. Be anointed with righteousness and joy every single day. You've already got it if it's a gift from God. He has given you a portion in life. And so in that, in what he has approved, whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might. Yes, there is a point. Yes, there is meaning. Yes, what you do matters. So do it with all your might because this is not what's going to last. You can do these things for the Lord because they matter for all of eternity, even if we're all going to drown, <laughs> even if all the sandcastles are going to be washed over, even though it might seem vain, he says. Work hard with all your might and enjoy it every single moment because it will last into eternity. It will go beyond. You are free to enjoy everything that God has given you. So eat, drink, be merry, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. I love you, Boo. I enjoy it with you. (laughs) All the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. Your toil at which you toil under the sun. It's got meaning. It's got purpose as long as it's couched in eternity. As long as the foundation is not under the sun. If the foundation is in heaven Everything has eternal meaning. Meaning that you don't have to come up with on your own. Setting you free to enjoy it. Finally, point number three. Wisdom doesn't keep you from dying, but foolishness keeps you from living. Wisdom does not keep you from dying, but foolishness keeps you from living. Look at what he says there beginning in verse 11. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise nor riches to the intelligent nor favor to those with knowledge but time and chance happen to them all. No matter if you're Sarah Thomas or Suebelia, you are going to drown in the Pacific Ocean for man does not know his time like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. There is nothing you can do to stop that inevitable event. And you have no idea when it's going to take place. No matter how you live. Many of you know the story about when my dad passed away. He was 49 years old drowned in the Atlantic Ocean, ironically, according to this sermon. He was in his prime, okay? He was one of the healthiest people on planet Earth. That's not just conjecture. The doctor actually told him that. When he went for his physical, the doctor told him, you are healthier than 95% of men. So dad adopted for himself the nickname 5% man. He would call himself that. I'm the 5% man. What are you talking about? I'm healthier than 95% of men. Not just 95% of men your age, okay? 95% of men, all right? And so he wore that with pride. He was a triathlete. His specialty was cycling. The dude would cycle 70 miles all the time, which to me is nuts. I went on a couple of rides with him. He's like, hey, come on a ride with me. And I'm like, all right, we're going around the block. No, we were not going around the block. We were going around many, many, many blocks, Too many blocks for me. And by the end of that ride, I was like a baby giraffe while dad just walked in like it was nothing. Okay, Healthiest man I ever knew. Just like that, he was gone. In an instant. Literally, we are sitting there on a rock. Everything is fine. Everything is awesome. One wave took him into the ocean. And just like that, he was gone. Solomon says the, the race is not to the swift. The battle is not to the strong. No matter what you do, not only was dad physically healthy, he was spiritually healthy. My, my dad was my pastor growing up. I watched over and over and over as he invested into people's lives, as, as, as people came to know Christ because of him. At his funeral, there were over 500 people in that church. We had to move the funeral from the original location to a larger one because so many people were going to be coming. And story after story after story of how his, his life impacted theirs. How, how they were changed as a result of his investment, his wisdom. That did not prevent him from dying at age 49. Listen, I'm... 35 years old, okay, if I had the same lifespan as my dad, I would only have 14 years left. That's nuts to think about. But the truth is, I I don't know if I'm going to get tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to get the rest of today. No matter what, he says, man does not know his time. Like, Like fish that are taken in an evil net, Birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of men are snared up at an evil time when suddenly it falls upon them. That should be a sobering thought. That should be a thought that jars us out of our normal life where we just kind of float along. That should lead us to a place where we're like, I have to make the most of whatever I have but knowing that even if I do make the most, it's not going to guarantee that I get any longer. Wisdom is not going to keep me from dying, but that's, that's not why I do it. Continuing, he says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say, wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war but one sinner destroys much good. So wait a second, Solomon, wait a second. You, you've just spent all this time telling us that no matter how wisely you live, you're still gonna die. You, you, you spent all this time establishing that, that no matter how wise or foolish you are, your, your life is gonna end just like that. So now why do you end by commending Wisdom. By saying wisdom is better than the weapons of war. Wisdom is good. Wisdom is better than might. Even if your wisdom is despised and your words are not heard. That the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. The point that he's making is this. Your wisdom may not elongate your life. Your wisdom may not in this time under the sun get you recognition like this guy lived wisely and he saved a city, but then he's forgotten. But your wisdom does mean something. A commentator named Paul Apple said this about this story in verse 16. He said, don't pursue wisdom with the thought that this world will receive you as a hero and thank you for your contributions. Look at all my sacrifices. Look at all my contributions. He says, don't pursue that so that you can be regarded as a hero, so that you can get your reward right now. The payoff will be later. The payoff will come. The payoff does make a difference in eternity. You see, my dad died when he was 50. 49, I should say. Didn't make it to 50. My dad died at age 49. But before that moment, that dude lived. (laughs) That dude lived with wisdom. And it changed lives all around him. It changed eternity for people all around him. I'll never forget, I was at a summer camp called Super Summer. It was about two years after my dad had died, and I was struggling still with the question, God, why? Why, why did this happen? Why, why did this take place? But by the grace of God, in the midst of the difficulty, my, my family, my brothers, my mom especially, my gosh, what a hero she is, Continue to hold on to faith, continue to hold on to the goodness of God, continue to, to, to preach the gospel that my dad lived for. And I was sharing this story with these, uh, these high school students at this camp. The next day, as everyone was preparing to leave, one of them comes up to me and he says, I need you to know something. This week, my youth pastor forced me to come. I didn't want to come to this camp at all. I, I did not want to be here. In fact, I was planning on committing suicide. I had everything prepared, and I was going to go through with it. My youth pastor forced me to come this week. And then I heard your story about your dad last night. And it changed. changed my life. I got saved last night I gave my life to Jesus and everything is different and I have hope and I have peace and I don't know why the bad things in my life are happening the things that led me to want to kill myself in the first place I I, I don't know the answers but man that story your faith the, the truth of the gospel showed me that even if I don't understand there's a God who's still good And I started crying like a baby, right? And I knew in that moment, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that if my dad was told two years prior to that, if you die in this way, people will come to know me, he would have taken a running leap off of that cliff. He would have said, sign me up <laughs> to change the eternities of other people Sign me up. I will lay my life down for that. That is how the man lived. And it didn't give him a longer life on earth, but by God, it gave other people life in eternity. Wisdom does not keep you from dying, but foolishness keeps you from living. Right here on my chest, I have a commemorative tattoo for my dad with a wave on it. And it says, live to the last wave. Because that's what he did. That's what Solomon is telling us to do. You don't know when the wave's going to hit. You don't know when the, the net is going to snare you. You don't know when the trap is going to pull. But until then, I say, wisdom is better than might. Of the poor man's wisdoms despised and his words aren't heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. But one sinner destroys much good. We will not swim unaided to the other side of the ocean. But we are not unaided. We are not alone. We are in the water and Jesus is in the boat knowing full well you cannot make it to the other side, but I've been there and back, and I'm going to be the one to carry you there when this life is done. So in the meantime, will you, with eternal perspective, swim your heart out every single day with the wisdom that he gives, enjoying every stroke, every wave every jellyfish that stings you in the nose as you swim because this is the lot and the portion that God has given you in life.